On an off-quoted and would have been viral commencement speech, the late, off, the late author, uh, David Foster Wallace, he says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. The only choice that we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason to worship God and not something else, he says, is that pretty much anything else will, that you worship will eat you alive. He goes on to explain, if you worship money, you'll always feel you don't have enough. If you worship beauty, you're always going to feel ugly. If you worship power, you're always going to feel weak and afraid. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you're always going to feel stupid and like a fraud and on the verge of being found out. The passage that we're looking at tonight is a call to worship the living God. We could say, well, why? Well, in verse 3, we're told, because the Lord, right, Yahweh, is a great God. And then the psalmist goes on to explain sort of what he means. He sort of lists out a few reasons why God is so great. We can start with verse 6 and 7. Reason number one, worship your God because he's your maker. You exist because God exists and not the other way around. God made you. Psalm 139 says that God knit you together in your mother's womb. That you are his handiwork. You are his beautiful creation. And not just an idea in the artist's mind, but are a tangible, living, breathing, walking work of art. And not just you. right? Everything around you. All of creation testifies to his craftsmanship and genius and artistry. We see here in verse 4, In his hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. All of it, all of us, we all belong to him. We're his creation. We're his possession. You ought to worship him. But not only is God our maker, he is, we're told, our savior. Verse 1, Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Salvation means more than just the forgiveness of our sins. Salvation means reconciliation. It means enemies becoming friends. Salvation means restoration. It means broken things being made whole and hurting things uh, being healed and the lost being found. We are called to worship God because God is the rock of our salvation. Rock meaning the basis, right? Uh, our, our, our salvation is settled. Salvation is a plan that was hatched in the mind of God the Father. It was a plan that was then executed and accomplished by his son, Jesus. And then that mission accomplished has been applied to us personally by God the Spirit. It's a work of the triune God. Salvation is not something that we made up. It's something that he conceived. It's not something that we earn or achieve. It's something that we receive. It's something that God won for us. By grace, you've been saved. God does it, and he gives it to us, and we receive it with the empty hands of faith. God's our maker, God's our savior, and to top it off, he's our good shepherd, which you see in verse 7. Poetically, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Isaiah 53, Isaiah was an Old Old Testament prophet, he says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his or her own way. But God has sent a good shepherd to save lost sheep. 
And yes, Jesus says, that's who I am. Right? I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. Jesus says the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life. Right? Life and life abundant. The good life. Life to the fullest. Life the way it was meant to be lived. The kind of life you are made for, the kind of life you are saved for. This, Jesus says, I can give you. I'm the good shepherd. He continues in John 10, I know my own and my own know me. And I lay down my life for my sheep. The father loves me, Jesus says, because I lay down my life for my sheep. And on the cross, that's what he did. Jesus took the punishment that all of our sinful wandering has inflicted on ourselves and the world around us. Jesus experienced hell, so we don't have to. Jesus, the good shepherd, came to seek and save lost sheep. He came to reconcile and restore. Which is why we can say with King David in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. I lack for nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you, Yahweh, you are God. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 95 calls us to worship this God, our maker and savior and good shepherd friend. Why should we worship him? Simply put, because he is worth it. And in fact, that's what the word worship means. Our English word worship comes from the old English word worthship. We just dropped that sort of TH, right? But it's this word worthship, which means when we worship, we're declaring something's worth or its value. We worship God because God is worth our devotion. He's worth our allegiance. He's worth our time and attention. He's worth our love. In the words of David Foster Wallace, he is the one object of worship that will not suck you dry, but will actually give you life, life to the fullest. But Psalm 95 doesn't just call us to worship God in a vague or self-determined way, as in worship for me looks like sipping on a pistachio latte, which are really good, (laughs) but sipping a pistachio latte and walking through the woods or You know, I choose to worship God by, I don't know, listening to a sermon on Spotify while I watch the sunset over Lake Champlain. I'm not knocking those things, but those things don't actually count as worship in the the sense that we're talking about here in Psalm 95. Psalm 95 calls us to corporate worship, worship with God's people, not just an individual act, but a corporate act. Look at verse one. Oh, come, let us right sing to the Lord. That word come is an invitation, it's a call, it's beckoning you into something. But not just you, the individual, let's come together. Let's all of us go together and declare the worth, right, the value of this maker, savior, good shepherd, friend. The call to worship is like a dinner bell that's ringing, right? Saying, come come away from your work, come away from your play, and let's it's a dinner bell that's calling us, into us, uh, calling us into a house where we're meant to feast with friends, feast on the good news about God, feast uh, in his presence, to have your faith fed. Come, let us worship. 
It's a call for us to give thanks and praise. Now, why is it so important for us to gather as a church for worship every week? If you're just joining us, we're in a year-long series that we're calling Roots and Relationships. And all year long, we're asking this question, what do we need in order to live the good life? Like, life to the fullest, life as it is meant to be lived. Are there any essential habits or practices that would help us to live into that? And there are. Jesus identifies a few. And the practice of church, right, following Jesus with others, is one of those essential practices. Last week, um, I made the case that you and I, we were made and saved to be in a certain kind of community, uh, a community like this. And that you're trying to find the good life outside of community is like a fish trying to find life outside the fishbowl. It doesn't work very well, right? You were made and you were saved for this kind of environment, uh, a life where you are in right relationship with God and with other people and with the world around you, reconciled or being in this community called church. But tonight I want to give you sort of reason number two why you need to practice church, sort of following Jesus with others, and why that includes like corporate worship, worshiping God with other people, how this is an essential practice for you of living the good life. It all boils down to two things. Reason number one, not only is God worth it, so that, that could be reason number one, Reason number two, the practice of church and corporate worship is your best defense against the lies of the devil. That's sort of reason number two. One, he's worth it, but two, this is your best defense against the lies of the devil. Simply put, there are strength and numbers. I introduced the idea that there's a spiritual enemy that you and I face called the devil last week. You and I, or you might think that the, uh, the devil is an old-fashioned idea that we somehow sort of, you know, grew up and we sort of graduated from such things, but Jesus would beg to differ with you, right? Jesus very much believed that there is a devil, that he's real, and that in fact, he is your biggest enemy. He is the, the biggest obstacle to your living the good life. Not only is the devil real, he's actively seeking to destroy you and is the reason why the world looks the way it does, right? Full of enmity and strife. In order for you to live the good life, then you need to know You need to have a grip on what you're up against and how the devil operates. And in his excellent book, Live No Lies, author John Mark Comer, who's also a pastor in Portland, Portland, Oregon, he writes that the devil's primary objective is to ruin lives in this world. But he doesn't do that through sort of paranormal activity and haunted houses and Ouija boards, right? Like that's not like his main strategy. The main strategy, the main way the devil works is through lies, simply through lies, If truth is reality, the way the world really is, lies are unreality, right? They go against the grain. And when we go against the grain, we get splinters. Most of the devil's lies that we hear in our own life are spinoffs, sort of remixes of the very first lie that he whispered in the garden. The big lie of the garden is that God is not good and that he's not loving. You can't trust him. He doesn't want what's best for you. In fact, he's holding and withholding good things from you. So you would be better off without him. Believe me, the devil says, to live a fully human and happy life, you need to chart your own course. Sort of like unmoor yourself from this, God. Chart your own course. Hey, write your own rules. Author your own script. You do you. 
Be true to yourself. Speak your own truth. Do whatever makes you feel good. Never settle for less. Never sacrifice your happiness. Follow your heart. Eat this fruit. Do it. You'll be happy. Trust me. You'll be free. Right? Remixes. After January 6, 2020, you might have heard of Trump's big lie. And the language of big lie, it comes actually from Nazi Germany, where master of propaganda Joseph Goebbels is quoted as saying, make the lie big, say it often, and eventually the people will believe you. Make the lie big, say it often, eventually people are just going to believe you. And this is how the devil operates. The master of lies, right? the master of propaganda. Make the lie big, say it often, Eventually, people are just going to trust you, believe that that's actually the way the world is. God isn't good. He doesn't love you. You need to do your own thing, right? It's a big lie. The devil does this by overwhelming us, sort of flooding us with these lies, but he also, he, he, he manipulates us by isolating us. See, when we're isolated, we're a lot easier to fool Is it a coincidence that conspiracy theories have risen dramatically as we as a society have become more and more isolated in our intellectual silos? Do you think that's a coincidence? Is it a a coincidence that QAnon flourished when we were in the midst of a pandemic and we were in quarantine and we're socially distanced and isolated from one another? Do you think that's a coincidence? I don't. Right? When we are isolated, when we are cut off from community and we're cut off from people, we are a lot easier to fool. In one of his letters, the Apostle Peter writes, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. We've all watched the nature documentaries, right? We know how lions hunt. Right? They come in from the side and they try to isolate the weak ones. Right? To get them separated from the pack. Because once they're isolated, it's, it's dinner. Right? You separate a sheep or a wildebeest or whatever from the flock, lunchtime. That's how the devil operates. You are a whole lot easier prey when he can isolate you from community. When he can get you by yourself. John Mark Comer writes, as a pastor, and this is his quote, he says, as a pastor, I could tell you countless stories of people who have walked into sin or even walked away from God, and it always starts with drifting away from community and with other solid followers of Jesus. And as a pastor on this campus for 10 years, I would add an amen to that. I have seen the exact same thing. So much so that I feel comfortable saying the greatest indication as to whether or not you'll be following Jesus five years from now is are you going to church this week? It's the greatest indication. It's the greatest clue as to like your future life with God, right? Are you in community? Because if, if, if you're not, you're in trouble. See, the devil loves to isolate. It's how manipulators work. It's how bullies work. Sometimes my six-year-old daughter, Willow, she comes home and she complains about bullies in her class. And a few weeks ago, as we were tucking her in, she called me back into her room. She said, Daddy, can you come here? And I sat on her bed and she said, what happens to, tomorrow if, another, if, if, if I get bullied again tomorrow? And I sat there at the edge of her bed and we held hands and we talked. And 
I told her to stand up for herself, but then to go and find a friend. It's to stick close to that friend. Because I asked her, I was like, do, do these bullies, do they pick on you when there's a crowd? And she said, no. Right? Recently, Willa and I, we watched an episode of Wild Kratts, which is this kid's nature show on like PBS Kids, where Chris and Martin, who I think are actually from Vermont, right? Like they have creature power suits and they like turn into the creatures that they touch. It's awesome. Well, on this episode I watched with Willow, we learned all about the dole. And if you've never heard of the dole, I hadn't either, right? But the doles are these uh, sort of dog-like creatures that live in India. They're the arch enemy of the tiger. They live in India, and they are these pack animals, almost half dog, half weasel. They're about the size of a red fox, and they live in these packs of like 100. Now, isolated from the pack, the dole is just tiger food, right? They're small. Like, they ha- they're no match for, like, the great and mighty tiger. Like I said, they're like the size of a fox. But when they're part of a pack... This creature can not only withstand a tiger attack, like packs of doles are known to chase after and like kill tigers, which is amazing. My advice to Will is similar to my advice to you all. Like don't kill your bullies, right? Right? But like be like the dole in a sense, like stand tall, but also know who your friends are and stick close to them because isolated your dead meat, but with others, Right, you can withstand tiger attacks. You can withstand like the lion that is crouching at your doorstep and wants to devour you. Right? Psalm 95 is a call to corporate worship because there is strength in numbers. It's not just that God is worth it. There is strength in numbers. The lies of the devil have a lot less purchase and foothold in your life when you are not trying to do life on your own like some lonely dole or some stupid sheep. You are much better off when you're part of the flock and when you're under the care of a good shepherd. Much, much better off. But the second reason why you need to practice corporate worship is because it is the only way that you can break the spell that you are under. All of us east of Eden are prey to the lie that God is not good, that he can't be trusted. Right? This big lie. I belong to myself. I am my own. And life is ultimately about me and what makes me happy. That is a big lie that has gotten deep into our bloodstream. It is deep in our bones. And we are all living out that lie like easy. It's the default setting of the human heart, sort of east of Eden. This is pretty much the script that you or I are living out of. And it's a bad script. It is untrue. And when you live lies, you get splendors. Let me put it to you this way. Every day you wake up, you essentially live your life as if it is a movie that's all about you. Your life sort of feels like a movie, and you sort of feels like, okay, I'm the star of the show, right? Like, I'm the hero. I'm the protagonist. And all of you are either supporting actors and actresses who are like here to help me like get what I want, or worse, you're just background. You're just like extras and stagehands. 
If you're not a supporting cast, that's what you are. But life is about me. It's a movie about me, and it's about fulfilling my dreams. So thank you, supporting roles, uh, or, like, helping me do that. You all are sort of doing this, too. Like, I'm a, I'm a supporting actor or actress in sort of your version, right? A stagehand. This is the script that you've been given. No one actually, like, give you a script. You just are, you've inculcated it, right? You're just living out this way. And you're doing a pretty good job of it. Uh, like a, you're kind of like a really good actor in a really bad movie or play. <laughs> but it doesn't have to be this way. Right? There's another script. And in this script, you're not the hero. Right? God is the hero. But you do have a role to play in this show. You do have a role in this film. And it's not like demeaning or dehumanizing. Like, when we worship God, we are leaving a me-centered sort of existence, and we are stepping into a God-centered world, like a God-centered reality. And a good worship service has this narrative arc to it. It begins with a call to worship, right? God precedes us. He is there before we stepped into the space, and he's calling us in because he wants to be with us. He wants to be with you. And he has something to say. He's ringing the dinner bell. Come and eat. Feast on rich, uh, on rich food. And he serves us his word. He speaks to us words of life and love. And we listen. We receive. We enjoy. We are reminded that he is our maker and savior and shepherd and friend. That he really does have the whole world in his hands. We confess our sins in the ways that we have fallen short of his, uh, of his call to love. And we are reminded that we are forgiven. More than forgiven, we are adopted. Adopted into his family. The Lord's Supper is the family meal of God. God wants to feed and nourish our faith. He doesn't want his love to just hit our ears. He wants it to get in our gut. This is my body. This is my blood. It's for you. Take and eat it, all of you. Get it inside of you. Practice this. Embody this. We have a seat at this table all because of Jesus. Uh, all because of Jesus right? He won. He secured our space there. We belong. And before the service ends, we are then sent out with a blessing, a reminder that though we're not the stars of the show, we do still have a part to play in the unfolding drama of God's mission, the unfolding drama of his redemption. Not the hero, but supporting actors and actresses. This is the story, friends, to which our stories are a part. This is the true story. And we get to practice it and rehearse it week after week. At least you're invited to. One of my favorite quotes is from a guy named G.K. Chesterton, a good old Brit. And he said, how much greater would this world be if you could become smaller in it? How much greater would your life be if you could become smaller in it? I just love that idea. See, when we're the star of the show, we loom large in our life, and everything feels pretty small and dingy. Life isn't that great. With us at the center, life feels crushing when we're at the center. It feels like the weight of the world is on our shoulders, and it's toppling us over, 
We can't handle it. We can't handle the stress. We can't handle the weight of it. Because you aren't made to. Your shoulders aren't big enough for that. And life is spiraling out of control. See, like, our solar system works because at the center of it is something really big called the sun. But if you were to put planet Earth in the place of the sun, something, like, lesser in the greater place, you know what would happen? Everything would spiral out of control, right? Because we don't have that gravitational pull. We're not that big, And when we think, oh, everything needs to revolve around me, like Jupiter's crashing into Mars and Saturn. And poor old Pluto is like shot off into the Andromeda galaxy. Like it's just not going to work, right? But we're all trying to do that. Like life is about me. It all revolves around me. And everything is crushing us and crashing into everything. And it just, it's, it's a mess. And you need to just look at your life and look at the world around you and see everybody else who's living that way to just know that I'm telling you the truth. Right? Like, this doesn't work. We are all living out of a script that, like, life's about me and I should be at the center and it should all revolve around me, right, to one degree or another. And when we do this, right, things fall apart. We're called into a better way. Right? Where we're not at the center but the side. And that's okay. Like, it's more than okay. Jamie Smith, a Christian writer and professor, he says, Christian worship is essentially a counterformation to those rival stories we are often immersed in that orient us to rival versions of the good life. I love this phrase. He says, we are restored as we are restoried. We are restored as we are restoried. Beautiful. When we refuse to participate in the church or we try to reduce worship to a sermon that we can listen to on our own time, you know what we're doing? We're still living out of that me-centered story and script, aren't we? We're still sort of in that rut that it's all about me and I might fit God in where he might fit in terms of like my calendar. We need to step out of that and step into something else. We need to answer this call to corporate worship. Because this is the only way to really break that spell. To actually use our bodies and enter into something else that reorients our life. That gets that story, that narrative arc into our bones. Where we quite literally step out of the center and to the side. And friends, this takes practice. It takes practice. You're not going to sort of get that story just one Sunday. It takes repeated time. And again, you need to rehearse this. You need to practice it. What we do does something to us. My daughter, Will, is in a play called Flopsy Bunnies. It's like the the grand, like, you know, uh, unveiling the great shows on Friday the 11th. Flopsy Bunnies is sort of like a spinoff of like Peter Rabbit and Mr. McGregor. She's peaker in the play. She's got like five lines, which she like memorized in like a week. But she memorized her lines so early. Why is she still going to practice two nights a week? Like she's already has, she already knows her lines. So like why practice? Well, it's because a play is more than line memorization, right? It's immersive. It involves your whole person. And she's 
not there just to rehearse her lines with other people, but more significantly, she's there to sort of get this story, Flopsy Bunnies, inside of her to see where she fits and for her to play her part well. And that's not all too different from what God is inviting you into, except it's a much better story than Flopsy Bunnies. <laughs> right? Y'all, there's strength in numbers. And there is a new story, a better story for you to live into, something that is bigger than yourself. And how much greater would your life be if you could become smaller in it? For all of these reasons and then some. Because Jesus is worth it. Right? Because Jesus loves you. You are called into worship.